This is Rob Hayworth, and you are listening to the Fulham Focus Podcast. Welcome to the Fulham Focus podcast. My name's Matt Boisclair, and in a week when England has been subjected to a host of new restrictions, one thing that will never be restricted is the quality of this show. We've got reaction from the Carabao Cup victory over Sheffield Wednesday this evening, which sets up a fourth round tie in Hounslow next week, a preview of Monday afternoon's match with Aston Villa, and an in-focus chat about Slavisa Djokanovic coming right up. Joining me to serve it up for you firstly is Atlanta Georgia's number one DIY man, Don Love. Hello, mate. What have you been building this week? Hello, sir. Uh, my son is in a, uh, a new dorm room at, at his university, and uh, he has no place really to set up for his little kitchenette. So I've just built him a little cabinet that has his little refrigerator and microwave and coffee pot. And now he's a, all set, you know, for university. Plenty of beer. Super dad. Like your style. Also joining me is Aldershot's number one DIY man, although I believe he acquired that nickname for very different reasons. It's Baldo. Good evening, mate. Very good evening. See, this is why I, I made a note to uh, J-Mac, our other podcast host. It didn't quite seem the same without the insulting little jibes at the start of the podcast. This just feels a lot more natural, I do have to say. Good evening to you both. I always do my best, mate. All right, let's go. Fulham. All right, chaps, well, I'm going to come to you both quickly just to get your uh, assessment of the Sheffield Wednesday result. Uh, we obviously won 2-0 tonight with goals from Kamara and Bobby Deckard-Over-Reed. Baldo, talk to me about your, uh, your, your thoughts from this game this evening. I think it was a pretty routine game. I, I joked to you as soon as Kamara put the ball in for the first goal that that was pretty much game over, much in the same way as the Ipswich game. I felt that, you know, Sheffield United didn't look as if they were going to pose much of a threat, you know, with the team they set out. So I, as soon as we got the first goal, as much as they, they made a couple of scary moments, I, I we were always going to be in control. So once we got the first, it was pretty much game over. And then the second goal from Bobby Reed is, you know, icing on the cake, as it were. Um a game like that is more just to get a couple of the fringe players more minutes. Um, Jean-Michel Sherry, where the hell he's been hiding for these past couple of weeks, uh, we don't know. But he managed exactly. He managed to get. He managed to get a. He managed to get a run out. Um, Stephanie Hansen as well managed to get a, a bunch of minutes under his belt. So I think that was really more than this was. You know, look forward to see what hounds I managed to throw up against us next week. And yet, of course, we had Rodak back in goal tonight. Uh, Fabry back on the bench. And then a couple of youngsters came on, Don. We have Fabio Carvalho and Tyrose Francois coming off the bench in the second half. How, how do you think they got on? I thought they actually both looked pretty good, especially the, uh, the I'm always going to say his name wrong, Caviello. Uh, I thought he was really fast, and I hope we can hold on to him. Uh, they look like, as Baldwin was saying earlier in our chat, that they definitely could be the future. So, you know, I, I thought it was great that, we at least got up 2-0 and they were able to come on and, you know, at least have an appearance. That, that's good Good on Scott to have him out there. 
All right, the, the result and getting through was the most important thing this evening. We've done the job. We've seen off a, a much depleted Sheffield Wednesday side. Sheffield Wednesday currently bottom of the championship, but only because they were deducted 12 points before they even started. Um, they've got a win and a draw from their opening two games in the championship this season. So if they carry on that form, you'd expect them to, to be fine in the championship. Um but we did miss a lot of chances. Bobby Decker, David Reed missed a few chances. Knockout missed a one-on-one. He hit the crossbar. On another day, it could have been a, 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 the cricket score that it probably should have been against Sheffield Wednesday's second string. You know, uh, for me at least, that that is just the Achilles heel for Fulham over these last several years. You know, thank God for Metro and him getting X amount of goals per season. Per, per season because... We just don't get them anywhere else. You know, we're not like those awesome goals that we used to get where people shot, you know, 20 yards out from outside the box and they just slammed into the upper corner or anything like that. And we're rarely those beautiful little quick passes back and forth that goes attacking directly into the box and gets something. So, uh, I, you know, I will say Knockhart looked great. He actually passed the ball and we get a goal. So I wish we'd see more of that, but. I don't know where our goals are going to come from, to be honest, this season. I am worried about that. Well, it's going to be another big week next week. Um, we're going to come on to Aston Villa in a minute, but we need to find some space to fit in Brentford away in round four of the Carabao Cup. A win in that game puts us into the quarterfinals, which which happened a couple of days before Christmas, Baldo. So I know how much you love playing Brentford. That just adds a bit more extra spice and a bit more excitement to, to the game, doesn't it, having to play against them again? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned the scheduling. I'm just off the top of my head. I'm thinking it's going to be Thursday because we've got Villa on Monday night. So that probably rules out Tuesday. And then you'd think people would want to be in this whole uh, concept of wanting to not play too many games in a bit of a rush. You'd think that the powers that be would leave the Wednesday out of it. So that puts us to Thursday because we have Wolves on the following Sunday. So then Brentford, again, because there's no fans, so it's not going to matter put their game in the championship onto the Sunday as well. You'd think that's the logical way to go through it. But yeah, the, the game itself should have a little bit of a spice. But as I think it was Matt Arter said in the chat earlier, we beat them at Wembley. And until they do anything further or anything better than that, then we're always going to have that as a trump card over them. Yeah, that was what we always said, wasn't it? In the, in the build-up to the playoff final against Brentford. doesn't matter. Whatever happens after, whoever wins that game, just has eternal bragging rights, so we, we've still got that, whatever happens. But I'm sure we'll, we'll beat them next week anyway, let's hope so. Anyway, speaking of uh, beating teams at Wembley, it's Aston Villa at home on uh, on Monday evening. I think the game kicks off at 5.45, bizarrely, uh, UK time. Um, Fulham and Aston Villa have seemingly become unlikely rivals in the past couple of years since we beat them at Wembley in game promotion. Is this a real rivalry for you, Don, or is it just a war of words that those people who post nonsense on social media 24-7? Maybe it stretches a little bit further, I don't know, but only because when Aston Villa did get promotion at Wembley a year after losing to us, comparisons were made between their erratic spending and ours when their approach was referred to as doing a Fulham. Personally, I don't really care about Villa whatsoever. What about you? I agree. I I don't really see the rivalry between Villa... um... I, you know, I, the only thing I find uh, irritating with Villa is uh, aren't they constantly also linked to every signing that we are looking at or person we're looking to bring in, them and Tottenham? So other than that, I, I don't get it. I, I guess it's a it's a media hype thing. You know, they, they got to have something to talk about. So 
uh, let's make something up, you know. That's that's the only thing I could think of. Well, you talk about players that, that are linked to both clubs. It all started uh, a couple of years ago when Joe Bryan was having his medical at Aston Villa and we we nipped in there and stole him off of them when we were in the Premier League and, and they were still in the Championship. Um, then they completed the signing of Matt Target at the beginning of last season, a player that obviously was on loan for us, did really well for us uh, during our, um, our promotion run-in last time. And obviously Target, we, we couldn't agree a fee with Southampton in the end, so they ended up with Matt Target. But then the likes of this this summer, Ollie Watkins and Matty Cash, who um, who they did manage to get that we were linked with. It, it, it's frustrating that you say, you know, that, that, that Aston Villa are, are, are linked with the same players that we're linked with because they're, they're the ones that seem to end up signing these players as well. What do you reckon, Baldo? Real rivalry or not? I don't. I don't think it's a rivalry because a rivalry really has to work both ways. Um, I think there will be a couple of people that hold a bit of animosity towards Aston Villa, but in the same, but it's not in the same level as you know of QPR, Brentford, Chelsea, you know, that sort of thing. I've always there's always been those couple of things against Aston Villa that I've always held. My best friend, for instance, is a Newcastle fan, and I've always sort of sympathise with him for when Newcastle went down about 10 years ago. The sob on the Tyne banner and who's your next hero, Antor Deck thing of the whole 10, that's always, you know, through him, that's always affected me. Then Fulham fans have always just looked for anything to beat, to beat Villa with. The signing of John Terry, I know Dan Crawford at Hammy End wrote a fan- fantastic article, although I didn't quite agree with all of it. Article basically just saying John Terry is not a bad person. We all know that. So when he goes to Aston Villa, that ramps it up. Then the playoff final, then the Joe Bryan incident, then the Matt Target. There's loads of little incidents, but I don't think there's ever been that major one thing that sort of that sort of held it up. I mean, for instance, Bristol City and Hull City don't have a rivalry just because they lost, um, just because Hull beat Bristol in the playoff final about 12 years ago. Um, it's not just that. There's a whole load of factors in it, but I, I wouldn't consider it a rivalry. I don't like them, but it's not a rivalry. It's probably about they're probably about tenth on the list of teams that I hate in the world. It's unlike you to go off at a tangent, mate. I mean, I can't believe you started talking about Hull City and Bristol City. Anyway, I, I digress. Um, we're still linked with central defenders. We haven't signed any yet, as as I just said. We're recording right after the end of the game against Sheffield Wednesday on Wednesday evening. No defenders as yet. Um, Don, what is the the attraction for for players to come to Fulham at the moment? Because we have been linked with some big names over the summer, particularly defenders. Uh, Gerard Piquet was one of them, the uh, the Barcelona legend. But we haven't had any as yet. What is the pull? Why why would a player want to come to Fulham at the moment, particularly when you think all of the media have already written us off as relegation certainties? Yeah, I, I actually think that's an excellent question, and if and look at it in a couple of ways. Okay, what is the good stuff that uh, Fulham has to to you know attract players? You would think, well, London, that, you know, the location. People want to come and live in London. You know, it's it's a great city. They got a great training uh, facility. I think personally, the cottage. You know, it's it's a tremendous stadium to play in, in my in my view. And with the new uh, stands going in the Riverside, it's it's going to be even better. The other side of that coin, though, is Again, what is it that would attract players to want to come to Fulham now? Okay, so this isn't like a couple of years ago where we were a fairly steady hand in the Premier League. So, yeah, we'd get the older guys who were looking to finish their career, but we'd also get some players that 
you know, we're pretty decent and, and we're excited to come and play for Fulham, you know, that the possibility of what could happen, you know, in a London team. We don't really have that now. You know, we haven't got that excitement. We haven't got that that feel that we used to have, like, say, four or five years ago. Uh, you know, there isn't that, oh, my God, these guys are definitely going to stay up. You know, it's they're building on something. Um, so I, that's a good question, you know. And, you know, it, it could be we were talking about this a couple of days. We've actually talked about this a couple of times in our in our little chat group. It could be the reason why some of these players aren't coming to Fulham. You know, we're not a consistent team anymore. We're not a guaranteed, oh, we're going to stay in the Premier League. So, you know, you hate to say yo-yo team. I really hate that term, but there's a very strong chance we could go down. Now, I personally, I think we will stay up. I think Scotty's going to work some magic and we'll stay there. But I, I, I don't know. I, would you want to come to Fulham right now? Forget that you love Fulham. Would you want to come to Fulham right now? If you're a player who's thinking, what's the next step in my career? And you're you're building on your career. You're not at the end of it. You're not, say, 32, whatever. But you, let's say you're 23, 24. What, what would you do, Frenchie? Would you come? I think, for me, it, a lot depends on who else is having a look at you as a footballer and who else who else is in for you. And you've got to, you've got to think about yourself and think – where where am I most likely to be successful? And at Fulham this season, it's a gamble. It's a gamble for any player who wants a career in the Premier League to come to Fulham at the moment. But we were talking to J-Mac the other day and, and J-Mac made a really good point in, in the team chat when he said that next season, if we were to stay up and um, we built some foundations, that is the time when potentially better players will want to start coming to us once we've once we're beginning to establish ourselves and our style a little bit more and impose ourselves on the division. Last time around, we were, we were there for 13 years and we started off by signing players like Van der Sar, Mal Brock, Legwinski. And over the years, I guess the money dried up and the luck ran out and we ended up signing lesser players. And Chris Coleman did really well, by the way, on, on more of a shoestring budget that, that was given to him by our fired. But now the the... the possibilities with the money that's available um, are much, much bigger to us. But like you say, Don, it, it is difficult to attract the, the players that we want at the moment. And, you know, you see you see people on social media and even in our team chat saying, well, we need to hurry up and get a move on. We need to sign this, that and the other. We need we need defenders before the Villa game. Well, I'm sure the, I'm sure the club are working on this, but, you know, we're, we've, there's a sweet spot for the type of player and, and the level of player that, that we can attract. So we just need to be very careful. Baldo, what do you think? Yeah, I think you both made some excellent points. I think Don sort of gets uh, hit, the, hit the nail on the head there. What's the attraction? It's basically playing in the Premier League and living in London. That's really all that we have. But at the same time, you could say that for someone like West Ham. You could say that for Tottenham, Chelsea and a couple of others, you know. It, it's not that even Southampton's only half an hour away on the train from London. So it's not you can you can sell that to them. I think you know we've talked in the past about how we overspent in you know two seasons ago you know so I think we may have to go down that route if we want to sign if we want to sign these players because the, once you get past you know living in London playing in the Premier League if they actually know right we're in a bit of a perilous situation here most people think we're going to go down we're not exactly the most stable what you know? What's going to convince them to come? It may be a case of you know having to pay an extra ten thousand pound a week wages to 
pry them away from someone like, say, Southampton are in for the same player. We may have to give them extra 10, 20,000 a week in order to, in order to make them come to us. Um, that's that's just in wages. I think transfer fees as well, if players get a certain cut of the transfer fee as well, we may have to bid an extra £5 million for it so they can get an extra step of that. We've you know, praised Tony Khan for what, you know, for what he's done with, you know, getting the cheap deals rather than, you know, splashing out. But there needs to be a sort of balance there. And I think in order to survive and again, to attract players, we're going to need to overspend in a sense. I think Mark, Mark Schwarzer made an excellent point on Optus Sport. If you have a chance to read that, he makes, we're about five or six players away from being proper contenders. And we're going to have to spend in order to get them in. So whilst Tony Khan and the board have done a good, not a very good job, but a reasonable job to get the players like Harrison Reed, like Namina, like Tete, Ariola on a loan in now, you've seen that there's enough gay, uh, holes in this team that we need to, that we need to you know go big and we're going to have to spend big in order to do that. But Baldo, on that point that Mark Schwartz had made about uh, us being five or six players short, that's just that that's his opinion and that's that's completely fair enough it might be right it might be wrong but if you looked at the Sheffield United team last season what would he have said about them would he have said they've got enough to stay up or you know would would he have said that they need five or six quality players as well because they haven't really got any amazing quality players have they they don't but I think Sheffield United are a team that you know come together greater than the sum of their parts sort of thing um, you know, what's the phrase? Work will always be talent if talent isn't enough. It's all those sort of phrases. I think Chris Wilders has them very well drilled last season. They just, there was a bit of a surprise. I think uh, with us, you know where you know where the problems are. And the fact they haven't been addressed is, is just a major problem. Again, Mark Schwarzer last year, a lot of players said Sheffield United were going to struggle. And they surprised people. But based on the first two games of the season, these pundits, you know, Chris Sutton saying after one game, oh, Fulham are down. Based on the first two games, are they really that wrong? It's possible that, you know, that they'll, that they'll be proved right. So I don't want to, you know, be laughing at them just yet because as things stand, they're going to be proved right. You know, they he he said five. I'm, I'm not sure I would go that extreme to five. I do agree with Baldwin that, Tony Khan might have to get the the purse strings, you know, loosened up a little bit more. And we might have to spend a little bit more to bring in a player, you know, to get him over the, the finish line. Now, when you talk about that, what do we need? Everybody keeps screaming center backs, center backs, center backs. Okay. So on the Friends of Fulham forum, there's a great post by this member called Bencher. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm not going to say it verbatim, but the gist of his post was, Everybody wants that big, brute, big, ugly center back, you know, that's like six foot four, you know, 200 pounds and, you know, dominates in the air, wins everything, you know, controls the back. But the problem is with those guys more times than not is that they lack pace. And what he said is due to that lack of pace, when we are playing with our basically almost like wing backs, you know, our defenders on the outside, you know, getting so high up on the pitch like we got caught out with leads in that them having to recover is opening us up and allowing these goals. So what we really need is a real athlete. And I agreed with him on this. And I think this really does make sense. You need that guy who, yeah, he's got some height to him and he, he, he reads the game really well, 
but he's got to be able to pass still and he's got to be able to recover because if he can't recover and we don't have anybody else back there, we're just going to sh- keep shipping off goals left and right. So I know what we're getting, I've lost track of all the center backs that we're getting attached to or we're getting linked to. Uh, I've given up on keeping up with what is what, but I just pray whoever we bring in isn't just some big brute who's looking to finish his career or whatever. And we're, we're so near the end of the window that, Oh, we just take this and, and go with it. Or, you know, we don't really take the time to find somebody that, you know, does have pace and, and can, you know, dominate in the back and control everything. Cause that, that to me right now is the weakest thing is, is still the center backs. Yeah. We need another striker, but it's the center backs that we got to work on. You're right as well. We, the, the real problem that we've got here now is that we've let Alfie Mawson go out on loan. And I'm not an Alfie Mawson fan by any stretch of the imagination, but he is a body that can play central defence. So we now have to bring in a central defender, at least one, probably two. And are we just going to be bringing in a player for the sake of a body or are we going to bring in somebody with real quality? And that's that's what remains to be seen. Anyway, let's move it back to the Aston Villa game. Um, I want to talk about Aston Villa last season really quickly. They stayed up by the skin of their teeth. They did it with just two away wins all season. They conceded 65 goals, which was actually 16 less than us the season before uh, when we went down. They brought in a lot of reinforcements again this summer, who we'll look at when we do the stats uh, a little later on. Baldo, do you see Aston Villa being a different kettle of fish this time around, or do you think they'll still struggle and be in the relegation mix at the end of the season? I watched them against 10-man Sheffield United on Monday, and they were far from convincing. They won 1-0, but they relied on their new goalkeeper, Martinez, to save a penalty in the first half, which probably should have earned our beloved Massey target a red card on another day too. Yeah, I think they were lucky. I think there's a, there's a couple of teams that are still trying to bed in new signings because they didn't have enough of a of a preseason. You could see, you know, it's basically up and down English football. It's it's a bit of a problem. And I think Aston Villa are are one of those teams. I think they will be fine come you know come the end of the year, you know, come March and April. I don't see them being in a relegation battle in the last two or three games of the season. Uh, at, at least anyway i think they've made some good signs we're going to touch on we're going to touch on them later and also i think that the quality at the bottom of the table is yeah very much us included again unless you know as things stand us included the quality at the bottom of the table isn't that great so you don't need to be all that convincing in order to pull away from a relegation battle and i think aston villa will have will have just enough to get through it but i don't see them pulling out many strings, maybe a comfortable 13th, 14th at the end of the season. Fair enough, mate. Well, Jack Grealish was fouled a Premier League record 167 times last season, proving that he is extremely kickable. He's just signed the new long-term contract at Villa Park, uh, warning off interest from the likes of Manchester United. He's always been a difficult bastard to play against. How can we nullify him on Monday evening, Don? And of course, another old enemy, Ollie Watkins, given that we've conceded seven goals in our opening two games. How would you line up? Uh, I personally would love to go back to like a 4-4-2. Um, I'm not saying sick back and, and park the bus or anything like that, but I, I would like to go back to a simple 4-4-2. No, no freaking fancy diamonds, no, no bullshit, just 4-4-2. And with that, what I'd really love to see is 
somebody has got to be picking up these runs, these odd players that nobody else is picking up out of the midfield. And that's people like Jack Grealish, you know. He he gets kicked because, hey, you're right, he's very kickable. And I, I think everybody on the focus team would like to kick the shit out of him. But um, I think he he's one of those players that he holds the ball so long at his feet, you know, because he does – a, a good job of dribbling he can he can make some moves but when you're that player that holds that ball for so long you're gonna get kicked you're gonna get these tackles that come in you're gonna get double teamed so on the flip side of that i am worried hector somebody is gonna kick him and they're gonna get a great spot on the field or something because of it so i'm, I'm not positive what else to do other than maybe a four four two. We have nullified Jack Grealish many times before at Wembley and in the game earlier that season when we beat them 2-0 at Craven Cottage. And Ollie Watkins as well. We've we've obviously nullified him very, very recently. Baldo, what would you go for? Who who would you play and in what formation? I'm 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 expecting it to be the same old 4-3-3. I can't see us budging from that, although I am with you, Don. I would love to go back to a 4-4-2 and, and simplify it and play play football in a in a, a much more simple way than we seem to at the moment. Um, but Baldo, come on, talk to me. I think I think we need someone with basically the energy to to man mark him throughout the game. Basically, basically don't leave his don't leave his side. If he can't, you know, if he's not open to receive the ball, then he can't get the ball. I personally would nominate someone like. I was going to say Harry Arter, but I just remembered he signed for Nottingham Forest, but he would have been perfect in this situation, just to give him, the, just to give him that little nibble um, occasionally. Maybe Stephanie Johansson after his performance day, but in all seriousness, probably Harrison Reed, just to sit, just to sit with Jack Grealish, make sure that he doesn't get the ball and can't dictate play as as he usually does. So that would be my. You could also make the argument for Mario Lamina. I've been calling for him for a couple of weeks, just because we need, whilst we don't have the solidity with a decent centre-back, we're going to need something in front of the back four, and I think that Lamina and Reed both could offer that, so I'd go for I'd go for one of them too, personally, just Matt Mark Grealish. My only problem, you know, if, if you take Reed and, and tell him, man Mark uh, Jack Grealish, it, it kind of takes him out of the purpose of that holding midfielder, you know, that is trying to break up the pressure on the back of back line, you know, especially the pressure that might be coming down on a doy Hector or Reem, whoever's sitting in the center backs, you know, so I'm not a fan of just taking Reed and saying, Hey man, mark him for the game. So. You, you see the way that Jack Greedish can just go past players. He can have three or four people on him and he can just brush them aside. He's, he's a quality player. Um, so I'm not necessarily sure that man marking him is the right answer either. In how how would we line up? I think I think Ariola is going to be in goal. I think we'll see Tesse at right back and Jay Bryan at left back. And I think again we'll probably see Hexer and uh, Adoy play centre back. I think even if we sign a central defender before uh, before the weekend, then it probably will be too soon. You know we have, still haven't seen the likes of. Uh, Robinson or Aina in the first team in the Premier League. We haven't seen Aina at all yet, actually. Uh, up up front, I think um, it's going to be Mitrovic. Uh, I don't know. I think AK might play, and we might see we might see Cavalero again. Um, and midfield, yeah, Harrison Reed, Josh Onomer, and Angisa. I think that that will be the team for me. But Scott Parker did say after the uh, after the Leeds game that he he holds players back for particular games. 
and maybe he held Kearney back from Leeds and held him back from tonight because he's going to expect Kearney to come in and, and play just to just to mix things up because because he obviously scored the winner in the playoff final against Aston Villa and it might just be the, the kind of psychological edge that, that we need in that game. I don't know. You know, when you say that, how he holds back players, the other part of that is Tom's going to be one to prove, I would assume, that he is good enough to be in this league and that he should be starting, you know, all the games. So if, I think putting Tom in the game, he, he might get a little kick up the ass there from from Scott and a little fire in his belly. And he might just show something, you know, all of a sudden become the person we all wish he was, you know, hitting those balls uh, from outside the box again, like he did against Brentford away when I was there. So. Maybe it's a good thing he hasn't been playing. Well, we talked in the build-up to the playoff final about uh, needing big game players and how Kearney is a big game player. This is a big game. We've we've lost our opening two games. We need to start putting some points on the board. We don't want to be going into Wolves away in the fourth game, needing to uh, or still being on zero points. And so for me, this this is a really big game and one that I, I really want to win and, and expect to win. Going back to Aston Villa, though, they were runners-up in the League Cup last season, losing 2-1 to Man City at Wembley. Uh, but, of course, we knocked them out of the FA Cup with Belters from Knockart and Arta. Baldo, do you think we're something of a bogey team for Aston Villa at the moment? And how much of a mental edge does that give us? I think it gives us a, a huge mental edge. Um, yeah, there are just, just some teams that are tricky for others. You know, Hounslow were for half well for the majority of our time in the championship we're our bogey team and you know there's just something there's there's that mental edge that you just you just can't shake off even we was we're feeling we're feeling it as fans you know going into the into the playoff final you know we'd only beaten them once i think in the league since we dropped down and how's that going to affect you know we can't we can't beat them i think that's very much that's very much something that could play could play on aston villa's mind this time very good, mate. Okay, well, there'll be more of this in a minute, but before we carry on, let's go across to a chat that I had recently with Danny about a man who gave us our day in the sun at Wembley against Monday's opponents, Slavisa Djokovic. Fulham. Yes, I've got Danny Boy with me to talk about another Fulham legend. This week, we are going to go back over the Fulham career of our beloved Slavisa Djokovic. How are you doing, Danny? How are you doing, mate? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good stuff. Well, let's let's talk about Slav then. Um, he's been gone a couple of years now. Um, he was finally appointed Fulham manager in late December 2015, almost two months after Kit Simons was sacked following a 5-2 home defeat to Birmingham City. Peter Grant had looked after the team for three matches before Stuart Gray arrived as a coach. He took charge for a further five matches until Slav arrived as head coach. When Kit was sacked, we were 12th in the championship. But during that eight-game period without somebody in charge full-time, we sat just three points above the relegation zone, having drawn four games, lost three, and our only win came at home to Rotherham with Slav appointed and watching from the stands. It's fair to say that we were in desperate need of somebody great at that time. And having previously got Watford promoted to the Premier League, I was finally excited by something that was happening at Fulham. How did you feel? Yeah, I was very happy with the appointment. I think Kit Simons was a, a very good appointment when he was made, obviously coming off the back of Felix McGat. There was just something rotten about the whole club. I think it needed your uncle Kit to come in, someone who knew Fulham inside out and get that smile back on everyone's face. 
he did a great job because we could have easily capitulated and, and gone down again. But he was always going to hit a ceiling. And I think it was just a shame that we had to wait so long, like you said, for Slab to come in. I mean, there seemed to be four or five names always on the shortlist and his name was one. For me, his name stood out so much above the others. It was by far the first choice. And clearly he was for the club because they were willing to wait for him. And although it was unfortunate that we had to wait, I guess if that's the case, in order to get the right man, it's better than making a knee-jerk reaction and, and appointing somebody else. Yeah, you're right. He, he was already managing at Tel Aviv, wasn't he? Um, which I guess is why we had to wait. But I think he clearly wanted to come back to London and to England. And I'm, I'm really glad we managed to get him. That season, we ended up finishing 20th, although we were 11 points clear of the drop. So it was a good job completed by Slav and the team. And the rebuild job then began from that point, working alongside Tony Khan. The likes of Stephanie Hansen, Kevin McDonald and Scott Malone were brought in to give the team more quality and actually a, a spine of players. And straight away, we were converted from relegation candidates to serious promotion contenders, weren't we? Yeah, we were. And... I think the only shame for me from Slab's tenure at the club is that consistently we started every season very slow. I, I don't know why. I don't know if whether that's because we we did our transfer business so late uh, and, and there was little time for the, the team to gel together. But we seem to have a contrast of quite an average first half of the season. And then from December onwards, it just, I don't know, it just took off and it was sensational. We didn't spend an awful lot of money, if I recall, but... The players we brought in very much fit into Slav's system. It just fell into place perfectly. You know, Johansson, McDonald and Kearney as a trio just complemented each other so well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. I'm just looking back over some of the things that happened while Slav was with the club. But prior to joining us, he left Watford having got them promoted because he couldn't he couldn't agree a new contract. So I think he does have a tendency to sometimes throw his toys out of his pram a little bit. He said that he felt like he was no longer wanted by Watford and ended up being replaced by Kike Sanchez-Flores. Um, looking back even further, he was sent off against us for Chelsea back in 2001. He got a second yellow card for throwing the ball away, which is obviously one of the most petulant things you can do. He wasn't the sort of man to keep quiet if something had annoyed him. That's, that's the kind of point I'm making. Um, he spoke out quite publicly about the Fulham transfer policy at one point and issued a back-me-or-sat-me plea midway through the 17-18 season. Given that we were sat in 17th position in mid-November, that was something a few of our fans at the time wouldn't have been averse to, would it? I've got to be honest, I wasn't a massive fan of him coming out and, and having a moan about the transfer policy. I don't agree with the transfer policy, but I felt coming out publicly and, and ranting about it, I just I wasn't a fan of it. I don't think that's the kind of thing you should do. I think that should remain in-house. But... It was him that had the influence over uh, Mitrovic coming in. And blimey, if that's the calibre of player he was capable of bringing in, then we should have given him more say in, in the transfers. What about his handling of the Chris Martin situation, speaking about him being quite outspoken? Well, for me, that is probably my favourite moment of his time at the club. In that moment, you need a strong manager who's not going to take rubbish from anyone. You know, Steve McLaren is a very experienced man. He's been England manager in the past, but he weren't going to be belittled or undermined by Derby County or Chris Martin. Let's just go, let's just go back a step here. So what actually happened was Chris Martin was on loan at Fulham, wasn't he? 
and Derby sat their manager and brought in Steve McLaren and Steve McLaren wanted Chris Martin back even though I think we had an option to buy him at the end of the season so Chris Martin then went and signed a new contract and wanted to go back that was basically it wasn't it you know I want to bring Chrissy back to the club and obviously it unsettled us because Chris Martin despite not being very popular with Fulham for obvious reasons was having a decent start to the season and he looked like the, the missing ingredient at the time, that focal point of the team. And he is a decent player. And it just disrupted everything. Completely changed the way we played for a few weeks because we didn't have a target man without him. And I just admire Slav for the way he said, you know, we're not a train station. You're not going to use this club and, and then drop him at your own convenience. You know, you signed a contract, you're going to stay and, and fight for this club. And I just love that about him. From that day onwards, I knew this manager's not going to take shit from no one uh, and we're in a good place. And that came out in the way he handled that situation. Yeah, it was brilliant. And that's what you want. You want somebody to stick up for your club. Um, And that's exactly what he did. Let's come on to the thing that he's most famous for at Fulham then, the 23-game unbeaten run that led to promotion. Just before Christmas, we beat Barnsley at home. And as as things would turn out, this would be the first win of that 23-match unbeaten run that propelled us into a third-place finish, two points behind Cardiff City. There was a good battle between us and Cardiff City that year for automatic promotion, one which we ultimately lost. But the story did, of course, have a delightfully sweet ending as we defeated Aston Villa at Wembley to get our place back in the Premier League. Talk us through some of your memories. We looked invincible. The first time for me since Tagana's team that I felt we're never going to lose. I think my, my favourite memory of that 23-game unbeaten run would be Millwall away. Millwall were on a very good unbeaten run at the time as well. Um, and we just blew them away in the second half. You know, it was like watching Barcelona. The football was astonishing. And yeah, you just felt something special standing there that day. Uh, and... I think that's probably the game where it really hit home that we're going up. What can you say? A magnificent brand of football that has created a, a philosophy throughout the club now where the fans feel like that's the Fulham way. And Parker's obviously evolved it in his own way, but we still are very much a possession-based team that tries to play good football. And for me, that stems from Slav creating something special. I think so. I, I think he did give us an identity, something that we didn't have or hadn't had for, for a long time. You know, you look back at Kit Simons, he was, as you said earlier on, just kind of keeping the seat warm for somebody else. Um, then you had the likes of Felix Magat, who was just a complete and utter disaster. You hear some of the players' stories these days about Felix Magat and, yeah, just absolute d- disastrous. So, yeah, it was nice. it was nice that he brought in that... Uh, that identity, and like you say, yeah, that, that's kind of been kept going. Well, um, well, just just quickly, sorry to interrupt you. So what would be your favourite moment of that unbeaten run? If you take out the playoffs, because the playoffs is obvious, and we'll probably get onto that, but what was your favourite game of that unbeaten run? Mine was Millwall yeah, away. It, it was Millwall as well, just because they were unbeaten, we were unbeaten as well, and it was just like Clash of the Titans that night, away from away from home, the den was packed. Millwall thought all they had to do was turn up and win. They were getting on Sessegnon's back for 
just because he was popular and doing really well and they were trying to intimidate him. And he responded by sticking the ball in the back of the net just after half time. And you had K-Max goal and Mitro at the end and we absolutely blew them off the park that night. That It was fantastic. There was and, also a, a very special moment with Cessna at the end of the game, wasn't there? Where um, yeah. he was being interviewed on the halfway line and by the time he'd finished, all the other players had gone off the pitch. And there was a moment where he was the last one to come over to us and it was just yeah. us and him and we were singing his name. And that was a, a really nice moment, really nice connection between us and him. And I think it just really highlights, well, no matter where he goes or what he does in his career, he is one of our own. Yeah, 100%. He was so good that season, so good. And it was, it was a shame he left in the end. I also think that season, the, the Preston game away was was a good one because... We um, we got a late winner there, and I, I kind of ready to accept a draw in that one, and we still managed to to win, and we still we just kept that pressure on Cardiff the entire way through, and I just I thought we were going to do it, I really did, I thought we were going to get automatic promotion off them, but looking back, I'm glad we didn't because it gave us our day in the sun at Wembley, which I think we should talk about now, seeing as we are playing Aston Villa at the weekend. So uh, we, we've spoken about the playoffs and that final many, many times since on, on the podcast and privately. But just sum up your, your feelings from that day one more time for me. Just overwhelming. Every emotion you can possibly think of. Fulham have always been a family club. And you know I've said it in the past, that is the only reason I support Fulham is because my granddad started it off. And uh, he sadly passed away a few years before Wembley. And you start thinking about him and... All my kids were there. It was the first game where all four of my children had attended a Fulham game together. My two youngest, my boys, it was their very first game, which is a story that will be told forever, you know, in my way, in my lifetime anyway. Their first game was seeing Fulham win at Wembley. I mean, you couldn't make it up, really. You know, every club has fans that love the club and deserve to see that moment. And Fulham, more than most, for what some of our fans have been through, during the 80s and the early 90s and you know we've never won a major trophy so the fact that it was at Wembley just just made it incredibly special. Yeah I don't think we could ever talk about this subject too much it it was just an amazing experience amazing day and and it was right that we went up that season because we deserved it for that run that we went on towards the well in the second half of the season the Aston Villa Fans were quite obnoxious and arrogant and thought all they had to do was turn up and they'd be getting promoted. They thought that they'd be packing out our end in uh, at Wembley, but we put up the white wall at Wembley. All our fans turned out, 40,000 of us. And just that that setting um, it was, was just amazing. And, you know, for I've, I've never seen a state, oh, half a stadium clear out as quickly as it did at the end of that game. And it was brilliant. It was just a, a real party afterwards. I loved it. I loved that day. It's probably... It's probably my favourite ever experience of being a Fulham supporter, to be honest. I don't think you can beat that. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with that. The fact, like I said, all my children were there, something we all experienced together. There's none of this, yeah, we won at Wembley, and one of them going, yeah, but I weren't there. You know, we was all there. and yeah. Best Fulham day of my life, definitely. What was to happen next for Slavisa Zhukanovic wasn't great. Over the summer of 2018, a lot of money was spent on some disappointing signings for which Slav wasn't to blame. And he was given a squad full of strangers right before the start of the season, which, to be honest, he was never able to make work in the time he was given. 
three months later, after just 12 games of the season, he was sacked, having won just once all season. I still feel sad that he wasn't given more time as a manager and felt he deserved the full season, but perhaps it's easier to say that now, knowing the disaster continued after he left anyway. How did you feel when Slav was sacked? Right decision, or would you like to have seen him given the full season? I'll be honest with you. I thought it was the right decision at the time. Hindsight is, is obviously very handy, but he always started the season slowly, and, and it wasn't just in the Premier League. It was in the Championship. It was every single year. Um, we went into the second game away to Spurs at Wembley, and it was only like three months after the playoff final. Abu Kamara, Kearney and Mitrovic were the only three that started, that played in the playoff final. But for me, that's far too many changes. Um, he had to probably find his best team quicker than he did. But no, if I was going to go back and do it again, then I would have definitely given him the whole year because we didn't do any better without him. And it was probably undeserved considering how well we did to get us up. Yes, I think he probably wasn't happy at the fact that he had limited involvement in transfers still. I, I feel like that was a big deal for him. And I'm not a fan of sacking managers just because of poor form anyway. I think they deserve a chance to turn it round. And the fact that they weren't his players and he couldn't make it work when somebody's just said to him, here's a load of players, go and make this work. And then he had 12 games to do it. I just, I, it didn't seem fair. And I, I guess I always felt like if he'd been kept on, then he would have been the ideal person to have another crack at getting us promoted. But it wasn't to be, um, and, and it worked out anyway because we did get promoted at, at the first attempt with Scotty. So, you know, it's, it's all this about some maybes, isn't it? Let's come on to a rating for Slav's time at Fulham out of 10 then. What, what are you going to give the, the big man? There was something about him standing on the touchline. He looked like a man with authority. He looked like a real presence of the club. And I absolutely loved him being our manager. But then, bearing in mind, he's no Tagana. As good as he was, he's no Tagana. We finished third. So I can't give him a 10. I'll give him an 8. I've also got 8 written down as well for him. I, I felt like he represented the club really well. He had the club's best interests at heart. And, you know, it was a slow burner. He, he did... He did the job he had to do to begin with, and that was to keep us up in the championship. And then he turned us into contenders. And then from contenders, we we got there. We we got promoted in the sweetest way possible. With, with you know one of one of the best days of my life watching watching Fulham. So if he was able to do it in the Premier League as well, then I probably would have given him a ten. But it finished quite sadly, and just it was a bit of a damp squib towards the end, wasn't it? With that Premier League campaign. And, yeah, he has to take some of the blame for it. Obviously, he's not fully to blame. But for, for the way that he got us out of the championship and the football that we played, 8 out of 10 for me as well. Good stuff, mate. All right, enjoyed that one. Let's pass this back to the main show. Fulham. Right, well, we're coming on to the stats for Aston Villa then. Stato has lovingly prepared these, as always, for us. Don, what have you got for us? Uh, So going back, you know, if you look at everything we've done against Villa, you know, Fulham, we've won 25, we've drawn 22, and that's the Villa has won 23. I'm actually kind of surprised we've won that many games. Uh, It seems like more than I would have thought. But, you know, uh, most recent games was being the FA Cup last year, of course, you know, in the playoff final back in 2018. Um, Supposedly we haven't lost a game against Villa since January of 2010. That's pretty impressive. Uh, 
that's that's you know, got to be at home. That's at home, surely. Well, yeah, it says haven't yeah. lost a game at home against oh, okay. Fulham since 2010. So I, I think you know that that's pretty impressive. I, I hope Fulham become that kind of fortitude uh, again to where everybody's worried about coming to to the cottage. That uh, you know we've. Uh, had some good games against them in the Premier League. You know, like we registered a 2-0 win, uh, uh, one of the few wins uh, with uh, goals from Sidwell and Berbatov, uh, of all players. You know, he could score some goals back then, although he was a paperweight in my mind. Um, and Parker played a full 90 minutes back on that day. That would have been back in uh, 2013, I believe, uh, when Sidwell scored that goal in uh, Berbatov. So, you know, like I said, there's some history here. Uh, bigger, biggest ever home win against Villa was five uh, one back in November of 1966. Thank God, finally, Stato's put some stats in here that happened before I was even born. Oh um, yeah, of course. You know, we, we we should move on, I guess, to the to the story of Aston Villa, uh, their their season for last year. Uh, Everybody talked about how they pulled a Fulham. You know, they went and spent an estimated 120 million pounds and got 12 new signings. Uh, that's pretty big disru- uh, disruption to a team. You know, no no more continuity there if you're bringing in uh, 12 new players. But you know, and that, I think that's what showed they brought in 12 new players, so they got off to a rocky start and they only won three of their opening 10 games. Uh, again, 12 new players coming in. What do you expect? Their form uh, back then, you know, they nosedived going into November as they only won four games between November and the end of January. So, yeah, you know, they they, they really failed to get a single win for 10 straight games. Uh, they only got a, one win in the seven games uh, uh, that was in the restart. So they really are lucky that they stayed up uh, by the skin of their teeth. So I, I don't see them doing a whole lot. Uh, this this season they may not be in the relegation zone but i don't see them doing a whole lot good stuff mate all right well baldo over to you okay well i've been tasked with taking a look at aston villa's statistics for the season and their away form and you know fulham were very much a team that uh the away form was very much not our forte in the premier league and it turned out that wasn't the case for aston villa either last season um they only won two away games in, in the whole campaign, and they were very poor defensively, conceding almost two goals a game and only scoring one goal a game. So everything very much against them when they travelled away from Villa Park. Uh, didn't manage to keep a clean sheet away from home as well. So if you're one of those people that hangs to that, you know, statistical nominee that we haven't had a nil-nil game since... In fact, it was Aston Villa at home, wasn't it? That that's the start of it, I, I believe. Um, that 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 nil nil at the start of whatever season it was, however many games ago. If you're one of those people that clings to that stat, obviously more than I do, then you won't be getting a you won't be getting a nil nil game goal game in this in this one. Um, let's see, seventy six percent of their goals have been conceded in the second half. So so long as we can keep things tight and not concede in the first half, then there's every chance that we'll be able to uh, snatch snatch something in the second. And 13 of the 28 goals they conceded in the second half of games came in the last 15 minutes of the game. So if it's no tight, no nil-nil or one-nil to them, there's always going to be that chance that we can we can nick something at the end because it seems they're going to be very uh, vulnerable at the back. They took the lead eight times in away games last season, but conceded an equaliser on six of those occasions. Conversely, their opponents took the lead 16 times and Villa could only equalise four times. So as Stato puts here, scoring first will be key. 
Now, I've also been tasked with taking a look at their new signings. We sort of touched on them earlier. Let's let's start with Matty Cash, uh, someone who was who was very much linked with us, right back from Nottingham Forest for fourteen million pounds. Who I thought was one of the best defenders, in fact, one of the best players in the Championship last season. I don't know if he sneaked into the team of the year, but he certainly certainly deserved it. Uh, five assists for them last year. He's obviously a little bit slow starter this time. Uh, that assisting prowess came from the fact that he was a right winger before he got converted into a right back by Sebri Lamushi. Uh, let's go for another one. Ollie Watkins, another name that was very briefly mentioned with us. Everyone knows him from his time in Aston Villa. £28 million. Probably a little bit too much for my mind, but we'll miss that. 26 goals and three assists last season as he finished just behind um, our very own Alexander Mitrovic in the Golden Boot Race. Um, very much an all-rounder. 10 goals with his right foot, seven with his left and eight with his head. So it's not as if he's got a weak foot or any sort of weakness. Any ball that's in the box, he's going to have a good chance of getting He's going to get on it. Uh, Bertrand Traore, another new signing who I was also linked with us very briefly. Uh, not quite as prolific as as Ollie Watkins last season. He only got one goal and three assists, um, which is a far cry from his best season, which was in 2007-2018, where he's got 13 goals and four assists. And last but not least, who I personally think is the best signing they've made this this summer, is Emilio Emiliano Martinez from Arsenal, who I believe was one of the best backup goalkeepers in the Premier League last season and just didn't have his chance to shine. But he showed on his first game, uh, score, uh, saving a penalty, but also when he played last season for Arsenal on occasion, he proved to be a very good goalkeeper. Signed for £17 million. I think that's a very reasonable a very reasonable price. Villa had multiple goalkeeper issues last season with the likes of Tom Heaton getting injured and then Oja Nyland. Uh, being very, very unreliable, necessitating the move for Pepe Reina. So it'll be interesting to see how well we do against him. Nine Premier League appearances for Arsenal last season when he deputised for Burn Leno. So, yeah, that's all I've got in terms of Villa, their stats and their new signings. Let's see how well they do against us. Yeah, you mentioned Emiliano Martinez, and I was talking to my boss at work yesterday, who's a Reading fan. And apparently Martinez was on loan at Reading a couple of years ago and was amazing for them. Um, I can't, you know, I can't say I know much about him, but apparently he said that he, he just used to say things that, you know, he's never never seen anything like it before. And he said it's probably the, the best goalkeeper that Reading have had. And, you know, back back in the 90s, they had Shaka Hislop when, when he was amazing as well. So... Yeah, just one of the comments that sort of got picked up when he made the move to Aston Villa. All the fans of clubs that he'd been on loan on, he'd been on loan at previously, all said what a fantastic goalkeeper he is. So just because he was back up for all those years at Arsenal doesn't mean that he's a scrub. He does have the potential to be very, very good. And yeah, of course, he saved a penalty on his debut the other night as well um, at home against Sheffield United. So great start for him. Okay, so I'm going to look at their key players aside from the new signings. Of course, there's Jack Grealish, Mr. Aston Villa himself. Jack Grealish was instrumental to their survival last season as he scored eight goals and assisted six and had a direct hand in 34% of their goals last season. So for them, that was probably securing him on a new deal was probably the best signing they've made all summer. He played in all but two of their games last season and... Yeah, he, he's the club captain who's come up through the academy and it's a very rare thing these days that a player comes up through the academy and, and stays. And, of course, he stayed for three seasons in the championship as well. Um, so 
you know, we, we talk about how great it was that the Mitro stayed with us when we went down for a year, but Grealish really, really, you know, love him or hate him. You, that, that is, that is something. Um, Tyrone Mings, a 27 year old centre back that spent 2018, 19 out on loan at Villa from Bournemouth and was instrumental in their defence as they got promotion to the Premier League. Villa, Villa immediately paid the £20 million transfer fee to Bournemouth to, to sign him permanently. And he played 33 games last season, averaging 0.9 interceptions per game, 5.7 clearances per game and 1.5 blocks. Now, the, I, know, I know these are well-researched stats from Stato, but I don't really know how that fits in with, uh, with you know, how how all of the top defenders did and how, how they all did. But Villa were obviously under the cosh a lot last season, so that obviously plays into uh, those stats quite a bit. Um, he achieved two England caps uh, at the end of last season due to his impressive form with Villa too. The final player I'm going to come on to is John McGinn, a central midfielder who was key to their survival last year also. He's box-to-box and offers creativity and a bit of grit and guile in midfield. Um, in terms of goals, he got three last season and three assists. Villa's form noticeably dipped when he picked up a serious injury last season that would have ruled him out for the season, if not for lockdown and then the subsequent restart. And then form picked up when he returned to the team after the restart. Right, so I think it's about time that we come back onto Fulham and let's talk about a score prediction for the game on Monday night, chaps. Uh, Don, I'm going to come to you first. How do you think the game's going to pan out? Uh, I'm thinking it's going to be uh, pretty back and forth. At least that's that's what I'm hoping. That uh, it could get a little scrappy. I'm uh, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm I'm also thinking if we score, it's, it's going to be an ugly goal. I've got a feeling. I, I'm going to say one all. Okay, so you think we're going to get a point? What about you, Baldo? I'm, I'm hoping for the point. Okay. I'm feeling ever the more slightly confident, and I do not know why. Just that nagging feeling that eventually we're going to get something. I just feel, you know, bogey team, whether whatever, it's going to come down. I think it's going to be a 2 1 victory for Fulham, personally. Yeah, I can see a 2 1. I can't see us keeping a clean sheet, but I, I just can't see us not winning this game. Um, I really hope so, anyway. We've, we've got to get some points on the board quickly. And they've got to come from somewhere. So yeah, I think uh, I think the revival starts now. All right, chaps. Well, we will be back to record a show right after the final whistle at Craven Cottage on Monday evening. Uh, the pod will be out first thing on Tuesday morning UK time. Don Baldo, good to speak to you tonight. Thanks to you all for listening at home, and speak to you all again next week. Cheers. Mm-hmm.